Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Janelle Bowers. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, The Birds and the Bees, was recorded live at the Workshop Brewing Company in Traverse City, Michigan, in November 2016. In our first story, Rebecca Lassard learns that having a car full of angry raptors can be as much of an opportunity as it is a challenge. All right, so my story takes place on a Saturday on a Memorial weekend. And it's about 9.30 at night, okay? And I have just finished um, presenting some Bird of Prey programs at a Benzie County campground. And um, now I'm on the way home to Leelanau County with the birds in the back of my car with these raptors in their travel crates. And um, we're all really tired and we're hungry. And I'm trying to get home quickly because um, hungry raptors at the end of the day have really challenging attitudes. <laughs> so, um, Thankfully, I can take mostly back roads to get home. And so there's literally no traffic. And so I come to the one and only four-way stop um, on my journey home. And it's a really familiar stop. And so I slow down as I get up to the, to the stop sign. And it's really open. And I can clearly see that there's no traffic. So I roll on through. And uh, less than a quarter mile up the road, I see in my rearview mirror the flashing lights of the cop car that are um, catching up to me pretty quickly. So I'm sure that I only sighed, but I probably said a terrible word. And I pulled my car off to the side of the road, and I parked. And as I'm reaching for my um, registration out of my glove compartment, I'm actually chuckling, saying, Rebecca, you are so busted. So I get my driver's license, and I'm sitting in, in the car. My window's already down because it's, it's a warm evening. And um, the cop comes up to my car, and I said, good evening, officer. And he says, do you know why I stopped you? And I said, yes, I failed to stop completely at the stop sign. And he said, well, you didn't even slow down. You just blasted right through. <laughs> And I said, truth be told, I did slow down, but I didn't stop. And so therefore, I'm wrong. I broke the law, and I deserve a ticket. And he said, have you ever had a ticket before? And I said, no. And he said, you are going to get a ticket tonight. <laughs> so, so he's writing some stuff down on his clipboard, and there's this really awkward silence. And I feel this overwhelming urge to tell him why I didn't stop at the stop sign. So I said, officer, I'd like to tell you why I didn't stop, and it's in no means an excuse to get out of this ticket, but I really feel compelled to tell you my story because I don't want you to think I'm a bad person. And I look up at him, and he's looking at me like, no, you're not a bad person, you're a crazy person. <laughs> <laughs> so he says, okay, but he's still writing. So I tell him, I run this nonprofit say, uh, raptor sanctuary, and it's all about education. And I go around and travel with these raptors and do these educational programs. 
and that I just did all these programs at this campground and it's late and I've got these birds in the car and they're hungry and they're dancing around in their travel crates and when I stop and go, it makes them even more crazy and fidgety and I just want to get home and get them unloaded and get them fed and get some supper myself. And he's just staring at me. <laughs> and I think, oh no, I shouldn't have said all this. <laughs> so then he says, what kind of birds do you have in the car? And I said, they're raptors, birds of prey. And so he puts his clipboard down and he says, if you show me a bird, I won't write you a ticket. <laughs> and I'm like, deal. <laughs> So I get out of my car, and um, he follows me around to the back, and I open the hatch, and I, there's my, the four birds. And I said, so I have a vulture, a hawk, a falcon, and an owl. Who do you want to see? And without any hesitation, he says, the owl. So I reach to get my handling glove, and the cop immediately is like, no, 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 no. And he backs up to his car, and he says, don't get that bird out. I just want to peek at the bird. <laughs> so I... I look at this cop and I said, well, clearly your response is showing that me that you must have some fear of raptors, which means that you don't know any, you don't know enough cool things about them. So we're just going to do a program right here on the, on the road. <laughs> so I turn around and I get my bird out. Well, my owl is, is Ned, my little saw wet owl that is like six inches tall, full grown, cute as a button. So there he is on the glove, and I present him to the cop, who walks up really slowly and says, oh my, that is the cutest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> so I began to share some really fun facts about owls with this guy, and I can see, I mean, his face is just full of wonder. It's a beautiful thing. So um, I get done, I put the bird away in the crate, and the cop says, well, can I see another bird? <laughs> So I say to him, well, that may require a donation to Wings of Wonder. <laughs> My brain is telling me, shut up. <laughs> so I, I say to him, um, who do you want to see? And he says, the falcon. So I get my falcon out, and as soon as she's out on the glove, she starts chattering and squawking. And the cop says, what's wrong with her? And I said, well, she is pissed off at you because you did not turn off those annoying flashing lights. So we, I begin to you know, tell him some really cool things about the falcon, and he is literally falling in love with raptors. It's just a beautiful sight. I get done, put her in the crate, and he said, oh my God, that was so cool. I'm so glad I stopped you. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I guess, yeah, I'm glad you stopped me too. This has been an interesting experience for both of us. So he says, I still need to run your information through the system, and it'll just take me a minute. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to get some Wings of Wonder literature out of the car. <laughs> because it's an educational opportunity. So um, we meet again at the back of my car, and he gives me my card back, and I give him a Wings of Wonder brochure, and then I give him a Wings of Wonder bumper sticker. And I said, this would look really cool on your patrol car. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when I noticed he's a state cop. He's not even one of our county cops. But, and, um, and he says, well, yes, this would look cool, but we can't put this on the car. 
And uh, so we shake hands and um, wish each other well for the rest of the holiday weekend. And I get in my car, and as I'm driving home, I'm reflecting on all the wonderful gifts these raptors have given to me and impacted my life over the last 26 years. But I never anticipated the gift of getting out of a ticket. <laughs> Thank you. Our next performer, Heather Shalgi, discovered that her children might have been learning about the birds and the bees before she was ready to deal with it. So, um, I wasn't ready for the morning of June 10th, the last day of school, to be the time when I would sit down with my children to talk about sex. I had always imagined it would be this unhurried conversation where we could answer and ask questions and feel like there was a full level of understanding at the end. This is the trouble with procrastination. If you don't set aside the time to do it properly, the time will be set for you, most likely at the most inappropriate time. I had been putting it off having the big talk with my son, who was 13. He is mildly autistic and seemingly oblivious to most social cues and often blissfully unaware of the changes to his own body. So I didn't necessarily want to introduce the subject of sex sooner than necessary. I wanted him to maintain his boyhood innocence as long as possible. Up to this point, we simply were trying to navigate through the changes in his body brought on by this whole separate entity known by all in our household as the puberty. <laughs> Which is what my son refers to any changes he experiences. <laughs> <laughs> we were having dinner with some friends who have two, two teenage girls, and my son leans back in his chair, and he's like, so, anybody else got the puberty? Because I got the puberty. <laughs> Silence followed, but then their four-year-old shouts, I smell like poop. And there was once again an even level of parental embarrassment and the conversation shifted. We, we had been having conversations about the changes he was experiencing like his voice. And I had started to notice other things, but I wanted to see if he would say anything. And one day while I was cooking dinner, he walked into the kitchen and he's like, Mom, the puberty is giving me armpit hair. <laughs> and I saw this as my opportunity to find out what else might be changing so I could help answer questions? So I responded, oh, really? Are you getting hair anywhere else? And he was like, anywhere else? And I was like, I don't know, anywhere else? <laughs> and he was like, yeah, but girls can't see the hair on my sack. <laughs> and I was like, you sound exactly like my brothers. It's like these phrases were genetically ingrained in your body. And he went on saying, I'm starting to get a mustache. And I knew that he really wasn't. So I leaned in super close, and I noticed a couple of hairs 
but I didn't want him to feel like it wasn't actually happening. And so I was like, oh, yeah, I see that you are getting a mustache. And he was like, ah, and so are you. <laughs> back it up, back it up. <laughs> knowing the time is <laughs> knowing that the time is coming and then that time actually coming our worlds apart on the evening of June 9th the night before the last day of school I went to check on my daughter before going to bed she had her tablet plugged in across the room playing sleepy time music off um, off of Pandora I went over to shut it off and there were a few suggestion arrows from Google like girl taking off bra girl taking off her clothes, girl getting naked. And at that moment, a huge wave of denial and sadness washed over me. These were suggestions. They weren't actually open links. And so I was trying to figure out how is this happening on her tablet. So I went to my son's room and got his tablet and took them back to my room. I started scrolling through his search history on Google and then on YouTube. He had been watching cl clips of Kung Fu Panda, so I was feeling pretty good. <laughs> I scrolled down and began to feel relief that he wasn't looking at these images, but that relief was short-lived because after scrolling through him watching about an hour of Kung Fu Panda, there were about 20 minutes of college girls taking off their clothes, college girls getting naked, college girls getting crazy, et cetera, et cetera. At that moment, I literally felt all the innocence I held so tight for him drain from me. I cried for the next several minutes for the boy that I lost in the fear of what was next. Many people say, well, it's going to happen eventually, and all boys watch porn. That might be true but that doesn't actually make it okay or healthy. I've heard stories from parents with boys on the autistic spectrum that keep their child from de devices daily because any chance they get to be on the internet, they're on there. They're stealing people's laptops. They're stealing friends' phones. Um, every single second is a struggle and it's ruining their lives. And I did not want that for my son. Wiping away my tears, I picked up his tablet to scroll through his history some more. He had started his night watching Kung Fu Panda, switched over to naked college girls for about 20 minutes, and then switched back to the Disney movie Brave. So I felt there was still hope. <laughs> so we only actually had a brief stop off to see what college was like, and then back to cartoons. They were going to their dads after school for the weekend, so that morning was the last day I would have an opportunity to talk to him for several days. So at 6 a.m., I sat my son down to have the talk. I told him that I knew he was watching naked people on his tablet, and he said, how did you know? And I told him I could scroll through the history to see what he was watching, to which he replied, how do I delete that? <laughs> nice try. I asked him how he found these videos, and he said he was watching Power Rangers, and that the one girl's blazer, she didn't have any shirt on underneath. And that's when I realized he'd stumbled into Power Rangers role-playing adult style. From there, I'm sure the suggestions for more videos was just a cook away. I have always hated the Power Rangers. <laughs> now I feel even more justified. 
He said he'd been watching since March, and this was pretty upsetting to hear. I had popped in on him all the time just to check, and he was always watching cartoons. I should have been checking his history or blocking it or something. No time for regrets now. I asked what he had seen, and we talked a lot about things, but mostly about how he is too young to be watching these things, and I let him know he can ask me questions anytime, and we hugged and went back to get ready for school. And my heart sank as I woke my 10-year-old daughter. I didn't want to have this conversation with her at this age, but I also didn't want her to find things out on her own from her peers, and I had asked her a few months ago if she wanted me to tell her more advanced things. And she was like, oh, you better wait until I'm 16. <laughs> and I was like, sorry, baby girl, but today's the day. I sat her down and told her that I noticed the Google suggestions on her tablet and asked if she had clicked on any of them. And she said, no, I have seen those before, but that's because you use the same Gmail account on both of our tablets. And I'd really appreciate it if you'd change that because I don't want to see his stuff. I just got tablet usage 101 from a 10-year-old. Lesson learned. <laughs> so I asked her if she'd watched, ever watched any naked videos, and she said no. I asked her if she'd ever seen a penis before, and she said just her baby cousins because they run around without their diapers on. <laughs> I took a deep breath and asked if I should tell her what sex was. And she sighed and said, well, you probably should. <laughs> so I said, well... The man's penis goes into the vagina, and they, that's called sex, and that's where babies come from. And her face just went, <sighs> and she said, is there any other way? <laughs> and I was like, no, I'm sorry, that's how it happens. And then for a second, I was like, oh, no, but there's in vitro and blah, blah. And I was like, no, 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 we have to go to school. There's no time for that. This is how it happens. I said, that's a conversation for a completely different day. <laughs> so we talked about a few other things, and then we started getting ready for school. I was helping her make her lunch, and I just felt that I really needed to reiterate that if she ever came across videos, that she should just not click on them because there are just some things that you can't unsee. And that's when she stopped what she was doing, and she said, I know. I saw this horse peeing on Mackinac Island, and I cannot unsee that. <laughs> and I, I was like, honey, there's not a man, woman, child alive that can ever unsee that. <laughs> after, after dropping them off at school, I had to make the dreaded phone call to their dad to let them know our son saw porn at my house. He took it much better than I expected. Upon telling him he first saw it back in March, I realized at that moment that's also the time when my son had a really increased interest in college. <laughs> Sorry, son, things aren't as YouTube would have you believe. Since then, life has been pretty much the same. He isn't obsessed with porn like I had feared, and the puberty still gets involved with his attitude from time to time, but we all are all surviving. He turned 14 last month, so in June he will be old enough to start driving. Oh, dear friends, I'm not ready. <laughs> When Karen Killian was growing up, no one talked about sex. 
In this next story, she explains how all of that was upended when her father revealed he was gay. So, like many stories about a life-changing event, mine begins with a phone call. It was a Wednesday, mid-July, about 20 years ago, give or take. I was 19 years old, and I was living in Chicago, where I had just finished my freshman year in college. And I was working at a little publishing company where I had my own little cubicle and my little desk and my own little landline phone. And about 11 o'clock in the morning, the phone rang, and I picked it up, and I heard, hey, schnooky, which meant only one thing. It was my dad. And my dad was calling me at work on that Wednesday morning to invite me to meet him for dinner that evening, which may not have been that unusual of a thing, except that while I was living in Chicago that summer, my father still lived in my hometown, Duluth, Minnesota, which is an eight-hour drive away. So my dad was driving eight hours to take me out to dinner. I didn't think that much about it, though, because Rick, my dad, was a guy prone to generous and rather manic gestures, and so I just accepted it on the surface level, and we made plans to meet later that afternoon at the Bennigan's on Michigan Avenue, <laughs> across from the Yard Institute, because that was the only restaurant in the loop we had ever been to together. Cosmopolitan Midwesterners that we were. <laughs> and it was at that Bennigan's on Michigan Avenue, across from the Yard Institute, over my Monte Cristo deep-fried sandwich with the powdered sugar and the raspberry jam, later that evening that my father told me that he was gay. Now, this was a bit of a surprise. My parents had been married almost 25 years by that point. They had four kids, and my family was very Catholic. So I was, you know, caught a little bit off guard, but as I thought about it, <laughs> and it was all I thought about for six months at least, I began to realize that this new bit of information about my dad actually made some things that I had never really understood about my family and the dynamic in my household growing up make sense. I mean, first of all, my dad was the best dressed and most impeccably groomed um, design build contractor I have ever met in my life. <laughs> and not only that, he was so good looking that my girlfriends often told me that they wished their dads looked like my dad. And more than one of my best friend's mothers had also told me the same thing. <laughs> but my dad was also a guy who was prone to deep depressions. You know, he had these mercurial, manic moods that would just descend on our house, and we kind of had to dodge them like meteorites. And he also would fall into real long silences that could descend on a home and stay for weeks. Um, and he would also disappear without any explanation for weeks but not weeks, um, sometimes for hours or even days. So these little silences and disappearances suddenly had a bit of an understanding. And also, in my household growing up, sex was a conversation that made my dad visibly uncomfortable. And I'm not talking about just the sex talk. I'm talking about anything sex-related. Even um, if we were at a family party and my uncles, and I have a lot of them, we're drinking a lot and started to trade in, you know, a little dirtier end of the humor spectrum. My father would get very upset, and we would usually leave early. Even the PG-rated TV shows of the 1980s, The Cosby Show occasionally, MASH, The Golden Girls, Sophia's, 
humor was way too risque for Rick. <laughs> he would walk over, turn off the TV, and leave the room. So needless to say, this all had a bit of an impact on me. Sex was a taboo, I, and I was a Catholic girl, and I was very shy. So I was a bit insecure where all this stuff started to come together in my life. And when I say I was a Catholic girl, I don't mean we went to mass periodically. I was at church, and I don't mean that you know we went, it was, wasn't a conservative Catholic church. I grew up in a kind of tambourine and Bob Dylan sort of Catholic church, and I wasn't there once a week. I was there four days a week. I ran the Catholic Youth Leadership Council. I taught Sunday school for six years, and I spent most of my summers growing up driving around the Midwest in a rainbow-colored bus singing kumbaya songs and attending Catholic youth leadership conferences where I occasionally gave speeches. So all of this information is a very long way around of telling you that when my father came out, I was a 19-year-old virgin and I was really, really unsure of what to do with all this new information, right? Sex was an off the table topic in my house, but now sex was the underlying reality of everything, and it was affecting my whole world. But at the same time, because I had been living in Chicago for about 10 months, and I was working three jobs to support my college education habit, and one of them was as a waitress, I had procured my first fake ID, which was a really, really shitty fake ID. I can't believe that it ever worked but it was a laminated couple pieces of plastic with a picture of one of my roommate's sisters on it and her, <laughs> and, you know, and her fake information. But because I waited tables um, at a little restaurant in Lincoln Park and I had a best friend who had a really, really beneficial habit of making out with all of the bouncers and bartenders up and down Halstead Street between Armitage and about Fullerton, there was a stretch there where I could get into any bar I wanted to go to. And I found a lot of freedom in that bar, like many young people before and after me. Now this was way before Tinder, right? I found that being in a bar after midnight and after a few shots of tequila, that there was a freedom to explore <laughs> and <laughs> find a sense of self-confidence that I had never, ever believed possible for myself. Now, as you might imagine, not long after that conversation at Bennigan's, my parents got divorced. Um, and being the middle child and the oldest daughter in my family, I put a lot of responsibility on myself to hold my family together, which meant that when the holidays came around, I made sure that everybody had a place to go. Um, my little brother and sister were still living with my mom, so that was taken care of, and my older brother was in the Navy, and so he was on the coast. And so I decided I had to host Thanksgiving at my house and cook a turkey and have mashed potatoes and cranberries and everything so that my dad had a place to go. Now, when my dad came out, there was some other information that none of us had been aware of, which was essentially that he had lost all of the money that my parents had thought that they had at the same time, and he had declared bankruptcy. So he was broke. So when my dad came for Thanksgiving and any other time he visited me, he slept on the futon at the foot of my bed. So my dad came to my house and my roommates and I cooked this fancy dinner and we all had a great time drinking wine and playing cards and having a great time, a great holiday. You know, it was the kind of holiday you could have if you didn't have all the other family around you. Um, but by the end of the day, my friends, of course, wanted to go out to the bars. And my dad was there. 
So do I go out to the bars with my friends? Or do I go with my dad? Now, luckily, my dad kind of solved this problem for me temporarily because he had gotten tickets to a cabaret show, <laughs> also on Halstead Street, but on a different end of Halstead Street, for those of you who know. We were a little further north. But I went out to the bar with dad that night instead of going with my friends with the kind of hopeful understanding that maybe I would get to sneak out and meet with my friends later. So we go into the bar on Halstead Street, because if your dad is and even though I still had this crappy fake idea and my, my best friend who makes up with most bartenders on the other end of Hall Street Street wasn't there, I guess with, with my dad, you know, I, I still got in okay. It wasn't a big deal. So I go to the bar with my dad and we hang out and we spend the evening at the bar. And eventually later in the evening um, or later in the night, it must have been around midnight, I decided that I was going to risk it. I was going to tell my dad, you know, I really want to go meet my friends somewhere else. And I was afraid he was going to be kind of upset or judgmental, but he was, he was glad, right? Like, he gave me this look like, whew, okay, good. Like, it's Thanksgiving, but you're finally going to go do your own thing, and it's all good, and it was fine. And so I, and I had gone prepared, because my dad was sleeping on the floor at my house. So I pulled that extra little key out of my pocket, and I gave it to my dad, and we just kind of said, okay, you know, we'll meet you back at home later again. Now, I had thought that meant that my dad would beat me home. <laughs> so imagine my surprise when I get home after two and my father isn't there. And he's not there when I wake up at four. And he's not there when I wake up at 9.30 in the morning. And it wasn't until about 10.30, 10.45 the next day on the Friday after Thanksgiving that my dad let himself back into my apartment. But what I have to say is that the look that he gave me at that moment was such a clear-eyed, unbelievable space between us where suddenly there was just this mutual understanding, this sense of forgiveness, of absolution, really. We never talked about it. We never talked about where he went that night. And this was actually a scene that would repeat itself many times over those six or eight years that followed. But we never talked about where he went, who he was with, or what he would have been doing. But in that moment, I just understood that here I was, 19 years old, and just beginning to find the confidence, and dealing with all this Catholic girl guilt of finding the confidence to go out to the world and be the person I wanted to be. And my dad was doing the same thing, you know, at 49. And suddenly, in that moment, I realized I felt the guilt just wash away from me. It was all gone. I didn't care anymore. Um, and I felt absolute agency to go out and stake a claim on my own sexual identity in any way I decided I needed to. Thank you. <laughs>
<laughs> so now that we got that out of the way, um, second, I, there's a little bit of a setup for this story. Second is that um, my parents are divorced, and my mom is, I'd say, pretty liberal. Like, my aunt, my cousins are all female. My grandma drinks vodka and OJs every night. Like, they're very liberal feminists. They're <laughs> all women. And then my dad's side, he was 30, 20, like, late 20s, 30, when, he, when they got divorced. And he remarried a woman who was 21, like just literally hasn't drank vodka at all. And then she literally hasn't drank vodka since. And, <laughs> and so, yeah, it's kind of crazy. And um, so my dad's very conservative and they go to a mega church in Lansing. I'm not sure. They got like 10,000 people in a podcast and a website and a video channel, all that shit. But that's pretty conservative. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> by the way, I'm gay still. <laughs> uh, <laughs> step two. Okay, so the story, the story. <laughs> um, so this is my senior year in high school, 2009. Sorry, I'm only 25. So senior year in high school, 2009, it was like, January 2nd, I had to Google this date because I couldn't remember it. It's not important. Uh, but January 2nd was that Friday of winter break. And I had been seeing, I had been talking to this guy in MySpace. This is a different MySpace guy <laughs> from the guy I broke up with. And I had been talking to this guy in MySpace. And um, we, I mean, I, he was a friend of a friend. And so we'd been actually like, we'd actually seen each other. It's not just internet boyfriends. And so we'd actually seen each other. And we made this date on that Friday, and my dad and his very young wife decided that they would go at a church meeting as, like, every year they do this, like, I don't know, apocalyptic thing, like, next, this is the last year or something, I don't know. So, <laughs> and the second, they decided they'd go to a thing, and I was at my house with my younger sister, who's only a year younger than me, so she was, I was 17 at the time, birthdays in February, blah, blah. So she was 16, I was 17, 2009, going on this date. I don't have a license because my dad doesn't believe in paying for shit either. So he doesn't pay for my <laughs> licensing classes. So he waited till I was 18 and I could afford it, which was barely. And so I had to ride my bike. So we had this, I, <laughs> parents went out. I'm home alone. Didn't get my license till I was 18. Boyfriend date. Okay. So it's 7.30 at... <laughs> On a Friday, the January 2nd, 7.30, it's pitch black. I had to ride my bike. So I had to wear a white sweater, sort of like today, and because I had to ride my bike, I don't know, all the rules of biking, blah, 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 I was 17. And <laughs> I ride my bike to the movie theater, which I live in Lansing, so like everything's really close, kind of. They're like five blocks away, but then there's a car dealership and a Target parking lot and then a Menards and then, then the movie theater. So I'm riding my bike. Oh, also there's a highway in between. So I had to like go an underpass. So I'm like riding my bike, tell my sister, I bribe my sister too like with five bucks because she's like 16, she doesn't care. So she also doesn't have a job or a license, it's fine. And so, 
Eh, she could have helped. And so she, I brought my sister. We go. I draw, I ride my bike in this like midnight time, which was only seven thirty, and to this movie. <laughs> and in front of the uh, car dealership, it's like a weird exit off the highway ramp. Um, and my but I decided there's also no bike lanes in Lansing. That's one thing that Lansing like has none of. There's no biking bike lanes except for in East Lansing. And so <laughs> I get to this intersection, which is the only intersection between here, my house, and the theater. And I get sideswiped by a van. <laughs> On my bike, bite literally looks like an L afterwards. I get ran over. I know, bummer, but it's fine. It's whatever. <laughs> so <laughs> so <laughs> I get I get sideswiped <laughs> by this white van. And then this white van <laughs> stops. I get up on my bike and I start riding it across the street, <laughs> thinking I can still go see the movie with that cute guy that I was dating slash seeing on MySpace. And <laughs> Turns out I can't ride my bike across the street. Anyway, I dropped my bike off at the parking lot of the car lot because, you, you know, I couldn't ride anywhere. It was useless. And um, the car decides to stop. They stop. And they don't have insurance. There's no police there yet. It's, like, only been five, I don't know, I, don't know, I didn't really know time at that time because I guess got ran over. So... <laughs> So the car, <laughs> so the car stops, and they're like, "Oh shit, what the fuck?" And so then it's a woman and her mother, and her I don't know ages either. This time I just got ran over. So this woman and her mother get out of the car, and they stop, and they're like, "Fuck, how do we get through this without getting insurance or getting sued or police?" And I'm like, "My parents don't know I'm gay." Oh yeah, forgot to tell you that my dad doesn't know I'm gay. Um. <laughs> So my dad doesn't even know about this whole thing. And I'm riding my bike secretly. And my dad doesn't know because he's at this Christian thing about the end of the world. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I am riding this bike and get ran over. And I dislocate my shoulder, uh, which still pops whenever I try and do like a, w a windmill thing. And, <laughs> and this car is like, shit, we don't want to know. We don't want anybody to know about this. And I'm like, shit, I don't want anybody to know about this. Can you just drive me to the theater literally a parking lot away? <laughs> and I'm like, please drive me to the theater. And they're like, yes, please, get in the back of my van. <laughs> and I will drive you to this movie theater. And then no one will know anything. It'll be fine. And then you'll be able to go home with your broken shoulder. It's fine. Nothing happened. So <laughs> I get to the theater, and I realize, fuck, I just got ran over. <laughs> I do have this sort of come to God moment. And I'm like, how apropos is this that I need to ask Jesus to not kill me right now because I almost got killed by a car? And so I call my aunt. Also, I had a flip phone at the time. So I only flip phone in 2009 of my friends. So I had a flip phone, and uh, I call my aunt, who we uh, appropriately call Cher. Her name's not Cher, but we love Cher so much that we call my aunt Cher. 
And <laughs> by the way, I'm gay. <laughs> Did you hear that the first time or the a couple? Okay. So we call my aunt Cher, and I literally call my aunt Cher, and I say, fuck, I just got ran over. Can you come pick me up? My dad doesn't know I'm gay. I don't know what the fuck to do right now. Please fucking pick me up. And so then she comes picks me up, and she asks no questions. She's like, whatever the fuck happened, happened. You're fine. And I'm like, well, not really. <laughs> so then she, like, schedules an appointment to go to the doctor, and I go to the doctor the next day, and they're like, yeah, your shoulder's dislocated. And so I'm like, okay, fine. I'll, like, she locates my shoulder. I don't know how that works. Like, I don't really know. She told me to do some things and uh, yoga, and it ended up happening. It was fine. And so my shoulder was relocated, and we thought it was fine. We thought everything was fine. My dad didn't know. My dad just saw my aunt pick me up from my house because I was bored at my house on Friday, and my aunt's named Cher. So it was fine. And so <laughs> then while I was, this is winter break, my senior year, we did, I, like, stay at my, share, my aunt Cher's house the rest of the, the, rest of the week, uh, the next weekend, and then the rest of the week until the eighth or whatever, which was the first day of school. And during that week, my aunt tells me, like, fuck, like, you are, like, taking a long time to piss. Are you masturbating in there? What the fuck? And I'm like, well, no, I'm just pissing. Like, it's fine. I'm just peeing. Also, by the way, this is about my dick. This, the story is about my dick. So uh, I'm like, no, my aunt, I'm just peeing. It's fine. She's like, no, you're taking a fucking, like, you're taking, like, 15 minutes to pee. You need a, like, what's going on? And so I was like, oh, it's a one-time thing. So then, like, over the week, it happens a long time. My aunt's like, you are taking a long time to pee. You are taking a long time to pee. You're taking a long time to pee. It was just like a record in my head all the week. And then I'm like, fine, I'll go see a doctor. So I go and see a doctor who tells me to go see another doctor, who tells you to go see another doctor, who then takes x-rays of my penis. Please do not get an x-ray of your penis. It is the worst feeling ever because you're awake and not drugged at all. So it's the worst ever it's like a liquid metal they put into your penis to tell, because there's no bones there. Sorry, ladies, there's no bones in a boner. <laughs> so they had to put this liquid metal up my dick to tell me that my dick was broken. And then I ended up, and after two x-rays, three doctor visits, they're like, shit, your dick's broken. So... <laughs> I had a stricture in my urethra, whatever that fucking means, I don't know. Um, so I had to get plastic surgery on my dick. And <laughs> so uh, this is January, this is like the 8th. I literally missed the first day of school because it was the 8th I had to go to the doctor and do all these visits. And so then um, they're like, okay, so we got to get this, this um, med we gotta go get surgery and shit on your dick because you have a broken dick. And so I go, I, I had to go, I went to Europe for some reason, and then like, when I come back from Europe, <laughs> that's in there too. So I had to wait two months before I came back and then got fixed. So I'm 18 at this time, and I get, I get penis surgery when I was 18. FYI, I had dick surgery. Not a lot of men can say that. So I got, <laughs> I got plastic surgery when I was 18, and then I'm in my hospital bed, like it was fine, like going through the surgery and all that shit, it was fine, I didn't, it was fine. And um, at the time of my surgery, when I come out of the surgery, 
my whole family's there, like my dad and my mom, because, you know, they're my parents, and then their parents and my great-grandparents, like, because I also had a couple of great-grandparents alive at the time. And so then my great-grandparents, my cousins, my aunts are all there to say, like, oh, wow, you're alive. You didn't die during surgery, which uh, that's a good thing. And so I come out of surgery, and my dad, I have a catheter. And there's two stages to a catheter. There's like the catheter that goes in your dick, and there's a catheter that attaches to the catheter outside your dick. They're very different sizes. One is like a really skinny size, and one's a really thick size. My dad sees a really thick size, and he says a joke that says something like, um, wow, your dick is that big? And I go, and I, this is the funny part. Uh, <laughs> and I go, yeah, Dad, it brings all the guys to the yard. And I'm gay, and my dad doesn't know this. <laughs> so I come on to my dad at this point. And then I just, my aunt tells me this, Aunt Cher, she always tells me this every time. She's like, ev whenever I think about that, you just grabbed the air like there were words you could put back in your mouth. <laughs> and you were just like, fuck. Put the bag in your mouth. And then I came out to my dad that way. This story from Paul Stebbleton talks about what happened when he was a young teen discovering porn and his mom discovered his discovery. All right. Well, thanks for coming tonight, and thanks for uh, pitching in for uh, the uh, event tonight. All right. Sex is, the first time you have sex, it's nothing like the epic poetry that you read. It's more like an after-school special. <laughs> and I honestly have to say I didn't have sex until I was 18, and I'm going to explain why. When I, was, uh, when I was 14, I came back from a ride on my bicycle after school, thinking, you know, oh, this is a great day. I've had a fun afternoon, ride my bike. And I come home, and I walk in the door, and my dad is in the kitchen. And we were raised quasi-Catholic, and my dad, that was the last place you expected to see my dad, was the kitchen. And um, he said, you know, you need to go upstairs. And I said, mm, okay. And that didn't mean anything good. So I walked upstairs, and I get around the corner, and I look in the room, and there's my mom. And my mom's sitting on the bed, and she's reading a magazine. And I'm thinking, oh, she's just reading her soaps. Mom was a great woman. Um, her idea of uh, being Catholic was... We had fish sticks on Friday, <laughs> and we didn't want to pollute the conversation at the dinner table over, you know, the Gordon Fisherman's catch of the day. <laughs> but Mom wasn't reading her uh, normal soaps. Uh, she was actually looking at my collection of magazines I collected from the Boy Scout paper drive <laughs> a couple of years earlier, and I'd hidden them in my drawer. But I was doing research, honest. I have to say I was doing research. And uh, she was looking over what I had, and I looked at her, and I'm like, Mom, what are you doing in my room? 
And she looked at me and she said, what are these? And I looked at her and I said, well, they're magazines. You know, they're magazines. Like, <laughs> she's like, uh, no, these aren't just magazines. Are you 18? And she looked over and she started reading the titles off to me, one after another. And I thought to myself, well, you know, maybe I should say I'm just holding these for my best friend. And I'll blame it on Robert. She doesn't like Robert anyway. <laughs> and uh, then I thought the better of it because she kept reading them off. And I'm thinking, okay, I better just admit they're mine. And hopefully it won't get an ass kicking from my dad. But as uh, she kept reading them off and everything and stacking them on top of each other, she's like, why are these in my house? And I said, well, Mom, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to learn about sex. And she looked at me, and I said, well, you know, I tried to talk to Dad about it. I tried to throw Dad under the bus. Because, <laughs> you know, that's what we do. We try to throw Dad under the bus whenever we can. And Dad, Dad didn't want to talk to me about this, so I had to do my own research. And she's like, this isn't research. These things are wrong. This is, this is disgusting. I can't believe you brought these things into my house. And I didn't have much to say because I just wanted to make it all go away. And so my mom kept on going and she's like, this stuff is all fake. This is, this is disgusting. This is denigrating to women. Imagine what your grandma would think. <laughs> I'm like, oh God, don't bring grandma into this. And, you know, she was right, but, you know, I was 14 years old at the time. I'm trying to figure out, how the heck does grandma have to do with this? I'm looking at, you know, girls without clothes on. What does grandma have to do with this? And, uh, well, she, she kept on going through the, the stuff I had, and I tried to convince her I was doing, you know, my own research and my own laboratory and trying to figure out what the heck was mom doing in my room anyway, going through my stuff. And, you know, eventually she started talking to me and saying, well, you know, you don't need to go through all this stuff. This stuff does not belong in our house. You know, you can talk to me about this. And my mom was a nurse. And my mom, you know, she went through all this training and thought that she was you know, able to talk to me, and I'm thinking, you know, why are you talking to me about this? Shouldn't Dad be talking to me about this? And I kept trying to get Dad involved in the whole thing, because I didn't want to get my ass beat after this. <laughs> and no, 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 I'm, I, I understand why you're looking at this. You know, you're 14 years old, and blah, blah, blah. And it still felt so near, 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 talking to your mom, sitting on the bed next to her with a pile of pornographic magazines next to you, <laughs> talking to your mom about naked women. It was very uncomfortable. And we talked a little bit more, and eventually, uh, you know, I came to an agreement that I would come and talk to mom, but I didn't think that that was anything necessary to do at the time. And she agreed to take the magazines and dispose of them properly. <laughs> and 
she didn't really dispose of them properly. I found them in the garage about two years later. <laughs> I think she took them to my dad, and my dad disposed of them properly. But anyway, uh, it took me until I was 18 years old and moved away and went to college that I actually started really seriously dating because I was so afraid to come home with a girl and, and have to talk to my parents about this because I had this conversation with my mom and that's, uh, that's how I ended up having to talk to my mom about sex instead of having to go through sex ed and having to do this. And the most ironic thing about it is our sex ed person was our science teacher and his name was Mr. Hand. <laughs> I kid you not, his name was Mr. Hand. So do you want to go talk to Mr. Hand about uh, sex education? I don't think so. So anyway, that's uh, my talk, and I have a 12-year-old son at home right now, and I'm really dreading having to have that talk with him. <laughs> so anyway, thanks for listening to my story, and good luck with your kids. Along Cameron's quest for knowledge had her seeking out more sources beyond the sex education classroom. But she tells us the search kept coming up short. <clears throat> My childhood sex education was kind of like Chicago voting. It started early and happened often. My mother, raised in the dark ages of the 1940s and 50s, swore that under no circumstances would her daughter be confused under the veil of silence and mystery that she was confused under. So she made sure that I was empowered to make decisions about my body and knew about sex from a very early age. I remember the book Where Did I Come From appearing when like, those thick-paged books were still in my life. I studied it with a clinical curiosity. In fact, I studied all things developmental and sexual with a devoted fascination, certain that they had the key that unlocked some really significant mystery of life. Because I'd been empowered to use medical terms to refer to sex organs, I felt it necessary to use those terms. So that made me a really big hit on the playground, you know, where the real sex ed happens. Because a kid would be like, so they were doing it. And I was like, that means she allowed him with consent to put his penis in her vagina. To which an entire playground of children were like, ew. As grade school progressed, we approached the class in which students are divided by gender and given a full afternoon in service of sex ed. I was so excited, I had a million questions to ask. I even wrote them down. It was really gonna happen, and I was finally gonna get some real straight answers from an adult who knew something. What ended up happening was the boys were taken to one room where they discussed boners, hard-ons, and doing it, and the girls were taken to another room where they had what I like to call period class. 
In period class, we were all informed about our monthly menstrual cycles. We were given a little box that looked kind of like a Happy Meal that contained gigantic menstrual pads and tiny little tampons. It also contained this little booklet that I read like 800 times that was a fictitious conversation between three or four girlfriends. Does anyone remember this booklet? Okay, there's at least five of us, thank you. One of them's a dude, thank you. <laughs> Represent! Um, also, so this, like, this conversation was pretty much about just these girls like getting their period at inopportune moments and being like, thank God that, uh, you know, lady support protection product was there. You know, it was like product placement at age 10. And uh, it was basically like they were passing notes between each other. And that camaraderie between girls was like weirdly sexualized to me. I had no idea why. <laughs> there was a vague mention of bra shopping. They talked about how their pants didn't fit because their hips got big. And there was a lot of conversation about boys in their class that they liked. But nothing that came close to what the boys in my class had learned because the class was called sex ed and lacked anything resembling what I knew about sex, I sexualized all the information we were handed. <laughs> I guess I'm saying that period class and its obtuse lack of real information about anything truly sexual made me queer. <laughs> it's not my fault, you guys. Oak Park Elementary School. Since I was planning on learning about sex and found my curriculum requirement to be woefully unmet, I went to the library that was then on 6th Street. When I found a medical reference for reproductive system, comma, female, <laughs> ding, in the card catalog, which to those of you who are under 30 was a giant stack of paper that was sort of like a Google search. You couldn't just get the book you wanted. You had to like fill out a slip of paper and hand it to like a cranky old lady. God bless the reference librarians of this world. So she comes toward me. I remember her walking toward me with this book that I believed would be the golden key to everything that I'd ever wondered about sex. She asked me why I wanted the book. Completely unprepared for this question, I was like, I don't know, just want to learn things and study about my body. She was not pleased. I felt like she knew I was up to something. I felt like she just knew everything. She didn't want to give me the book, or the stack of anatomical texts that I required, or the interlibrary loan book that I requested about obstetrics and gynecology. <laughs> the first book specifically discussed adolescence, so I had a, a spiral ring notebook thing, and I opened it to the second page, because the first page is special. And the, I wrote at the top of the page, in all caps, ADOLESCENCE. 
and com continued to write verbatim what was in the textbook because I thought in some way that would tell me what I needed to know. And since I thought period class was about sex, I figured if I studied period stuff, I'd eventually learn about sex. <laughs> right? That doesn't happen. So I pored over ana anatomy texts. I read about adolescents as much as I could. <laughs> I requested all these books. It's kind of hilarious to me now that I was so obviously a dyke when I was 10. <laughs> you know? Like, who does that kind of dedicated research? Anyway, but I'd been promised a class about sex. It was called sex ed, and I never got anything like it. Convinced that it was probably the most important thing that I could possibly learn, I had to figure out about it myself. So perhaps it was the promise that sexualized period class for me. Maybe I was more aware of my homosexual tendencies than I consciously knew at the time. But in any case, the library became a weirdly sex-focused place for me. I tried to trace the diagrams of internal anatomy so that I could crack the code. I had made a few co uh, I had made some photocopies, and the disapproving librarian kept an eye on me <laughs> because of my obvious perversion. <laughs> In this way, the first person to really police my sexual identity was the reference librarian when I was 10 doesn't count the innumerable ways that heteronormativity dictated anything that I could even conceive of. It felt like I lived on a certain confirmation. I was just seeking this information that was unattainable, that didn't exist. Like I was deprived of some basic truth about the world until HBO entered my home. <laughs> My childhood living room was downstairs, so my mom's back was to me when she was watching the shows that grown-ups stay up late to see. And there was a mirrored wall opposite the TV. So that's the way that HBO inserted something new into my worldview of sex and sexuality. One night, Personal Best was on. For those of you who don't know, it's a sporty movie from the 70s about, you know, failed Olympic hopes, sorry, spoiler alert, um, and maybe a little pot smoking and some naked lady business. <laughs> so I watched as two women touched each other naked as they had sex. And I snuck back upstairs making a dedicated effort to tell myself, you're gonna ask some questions about this. <laughs> and then I went to sleep and completely forgot, because I was 10. <laughs> so days or weeks later, we're flipping through channels and personal best flashes by. I'm like, mom, mom, I've got to see that show. And she's like, Elon, you can't watch that show until you're older. And I was like, why? I begged her to let me watch it. She said that it was a movie for grown-ups. I asked why, and she said, it's complicated, but you'll understand what you're when you're older. Never a satisfying answer to a child. I was like, 
come on, like be gearing up for the complete temper tantrum that was about to happen. And I alluded, I said, you know, I, I saw part of that movie. And if what you don't want me to see is the two naked ladies touching each other, I already saw it. <laughs> and so then my poor mother, <laughs> exasperated and probably frustrated, said, okay, well, the one girl's pretending to be a man. <laughs> the one girl's pretending to be a man. I played that line over in my head like an innumerable number of times. The one girl's pretending to be a man. What is that? I'm, like I couldn't crack the code of what that could possibly mean. One of those girls is pretending to be a man. It was one of those phrases I couldn't get to the other side of. I just kept with it for maybe about six or eight years. <laughs> I still had the where did I come from book though which mostly cited sperm, egg, and the love of a man for his wife. Aww, at how babies come into the world. But that told me nothing about sex. That answered zero of my questions. In fourth grade, our house burned down. I was transferred to a much more affluent school where I had no friends my age. <laughs> and one friend a year older than me that had no friends in her grade. <laughs> Debbie was a rich kid, but poorly so socialized and, and maybe some other things, I'm not totally sure, but she was weird in a way that was similar enough to the way that I was weird, so we kind of gravitated toward each other. She was for sure going to marry Eric Estrada. And I was for sure going to do something and was happy enough to pretend to marry the other guy from Chips. <laughs> she always had junk food and candy, the foundation of an important childhood friendship. One day we were playing school and she was like, I'm a school counselor and I'm a lesbian. She said it with like relish and this weird smile. I assumed that lesbian was a job because it had the word bin in it. It wasn't until several rounds of playing something or another where she called us one of us a lesbian or herself a lesbian or her sister a lesbian or her mom a lesbian when I finally had to like pull it together and admit that I didn't know what the fuck she was talking about. And to be honest, I could hug her weird ass right now because she was so astute in what she said. She was like, well, a lesbian is a woman who has sexual feelings for another woman. My trained response was to gauge how the other person would react and mimic their reaction. She was so neutral and doughy and blank. I had no idea where this was gonna go, so I was just like, weird! <laughs> Which was basically the response I had to any spoken mention of sexuality of any sort. But the written word, oh, the written word. <laughs> the written word saved me. I now had a new thing to look in the card catalog. <laughs> nothing. There was nothing in the card catalog on 6th Street about lesbians except for a weird reference to vampires and I was fucking terrified of vampires. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs>
Travers area distant, but better now. They're better now. We love them. Years later, as a completely non-sexually active teenager <laughs> at a Unitarian Universalist conference, there was a workshop called the Fishbowl. Every youth participated, every adult participated. It was this really cool thing where everyone was handed slips of paper and a little writing implement, and we were told, you can write down any question you have about sex or sexuality, and we will read it, we will think about it, and we will answer it. We might not get to all the questions, but all of your questions are welcome and valid. I was like, um, are you sure? I was there with a friend who I really wanted to be friends with. We were kind of like newly hanging out teenager friends. And I was like, oh, I want to be cool. I'm going to ask a really cool question about sex and totally impress her and be cool. And like I was sort of looking at what she was writing. And I saw that she had like a weird orgasm question. And I was like, oh, fuck, I don't have anything. <laughs> <laughs> that moment, though, was. <laughs> the first time I was turned on by another person. And the fact that the other person was unaware of my state made me feel immediate fear and embarrassment, like I'm some kind of sexual predator because she's just writing something on a piece of paper. And here I am like having a total girl boner about it. <laughs> I imagine now that the clues were everywhere, that if I had more than two atoms of information to rub together, the connection would have been instant and obvious. But I wasn't there yet. So I figured a way to have sexual experiences all the time without ever taking my clothes off. I just talked to my girlfriends about sex because they were all hooking up with their boyfriends and making out with their boyfriends and they thought their boyfriends were so hot and oh my God, it just makes me feel so weird when he's around. And I would ask them questions about it it was this weird fascination because I had this more compelling reference, this resource that was sort of untapped. And it wasn't until after a while, many years after I came out, that I realized I was basically getting my friends to give me a live show. Um, my friends, they would get all worked up talking about their boyfriends and I would just ask them questions to get more information because I was doing this like really scientific thing in my mind. I was recording data and I was going to crack the code for all of us. It wasn't just me. And it was sort of crazy because I know that I wasn't consciously thinking about that at that age, but I also know that in my less aware mind, I was getting in trouble all the time for staring at girls. <laughs> I got pulled aside by the camp counselor and someone whose name I won't mention was like, Elon stares at me in the shower. Like we were in a room together, in a classroom, in a school. And she's like, she stares at me in the shower. And I was just like, I do not. <laughs> And there was this like righteous indignation that welled up inside of me because I, I didn't mean to. I didn't know I did. So I guess if there's anything to take home from this <laughs> woeful story of many, many sexless and confused years, <laughs> it's, it's really that you know if you're doing sex ed for kids, if you're doing sex ed for your kids, if you're talking to anyone about sex who maybe doesn't know stuff, would you please consider 
that you might be talking to a queer little kid, could you maybe consider that that little kid is terrified of what they are and they don't know that there's something on the other side of that. You know, I grew up in Traverse City and I met lots of lesbians and I was like, well, I'm not one of those. I don't have a pickup truck. I don't wear flannel. <laughs> you know, I mean, I feel like there's a lot more representation in the media than we had back then. And that's a blessing in a million ways. But I really, I implore you, you know, those of you who have children, like you're training our future. Make sure you let them know they might be queer. Thank you.